part of being a financial grown-up is making sure you have a plan for how you spend your money and how you pay your bills. And now we have a new tool for that. It is called Split It. It will take a lot of the stress away from those big purchases and really allow you to plan ahead. Here's how it works. You shop online. And when you're ready to pay, you just choose split it at the checkout to split your payment on your credit card and pay over time. There's no interest, no application, no fees. It is fast and easy. So if you buy something for $500, you can split it into five smaller payments of $100 a month without any interest or fees, much more manageable, and you're in control of your costs. By turning your payments into smaller installments over time with no interest, Split It gives you more spending power. I know I don't like to have to pay interest if I can avoid it. And I also don't want to always be opening new lines of credit. Split your payments and live big with the credit cards you already have. Go to splitit.com today. That's splitit.com. Financial grown-up guide, five things you can control about the price you pay for college with author Ron Lieber. You're listening to Financial Grown-Up with me, certified financial planner, Bobby Rebel, author of How to Be a Financial Grown-Up. And you know what? Being a grown-up is really hard, especially when it comes to money, but it's okay. We're going to get there together. I'm going to bring you one money story from a financial grown-up, one lesson, and then my take on how you can make it your own. We got this. Hello, my friends. For all our talk about budgeting, spending, penny pinching in some cases, looking at the prices of everything we buy, most of us, our parents, our children, friends, we buy one really big ticket item that we shop for without actually getting to see the real price that we will pay. I am, of course, talking about college. And while, yes, we can see the full retail price on many universities' websites, the majority of us actually aren't going to pay that price. In fact, I learned in Ron Lieber's new book, The Price You Pay for College, that only 11% pay that price. So then the question is, how much of a discount can we get and how is that decided? Welcome everyone. Here on the Financial Grown-Up Podcast, we talk about money issues that matter to us as we move through adulthood and college certainly qualifies. Ron Lieber, the New York Times, Your Money columnist, who was first on the podcast in 2018, talking about how he got into school is now back to give us a peek at his very grown-up book, The Price You Pay for College, an entirely new roadmap for the biggest financial decision your family will ever make. Yeah, that's the truth. Like so much of our lives these days, there are a lot of things that we can't control. So I asked Ron to tell us what we can control, and he did a little myth-busting along the way. Here is Ron Lieber. Ron Lieber, welcome back to the podcast and congratulations on your new book, The Price You Pay for College. It's great to be back. Thank you for having me. What inspired this book before we get into your tips about the things that we can control about the price we all pay for college? Well, this book is both personal and professional. It's personal because I have a 15-year-old ninth grader and a five-year-old kindergartner. I live in New York City with extremely high costs, and it's a two-journalist household, so we're not exactly rolling in it. So this is going to be hard for our daughters to have the same kinds of choices uh, that my wife and I had, albeit for me, with a whole bunch of need-based financial aid. So it's personal. But it's also professional because readers kept getting in touch and expressing 
marvel, but also alarm at the fact that the rack rate for the most expensive colleges in the country had passed $300,000 for four years. And even the flagship state universities, many of them are now more than a hundred grand for four years. So you've got a $200,000 gap between them. And these readers were saying to me, hey, you know, we live in the era of big data. Where's the big data set that explains why NYU is $200,000 better than SUNY Binghamton? I did not know. And it felt like a new question to me. Well, you answer a lot of the questions in the book. And unfortunately, there is a lot about this process that we simply cannot control. But I want to focus for our grown-up audience on the things that we can control. And we've got a list of a few things we're going to go through. What is the first one? What can we control when it comes to the price we pay for college? Well, you can control what you know, right? You can learn how the system works. One of the things that continues to amaze me is the number of sophisticated people who are extremely successful in their own chosen fields of employment who show up in my inbox or in my you know, in my text messages in March or April of their child's senior year in high school, and they have no idea what has hit them. They have no idea that there is now a whole separate parallel track of the financial aid system called merit aid, and that rich people can take advantage of it um, just as much as low-income people can. And that's kind of one of the reasons why college has gotten so expensive, in fact, is that it's become this sort of vicious cycle. One of the things that's made um, it also complicated for the people who run these schools. Uh, you know, it's not just the sort of pricing wars going on in the background, although that certainly helps drive down revenue and, you know, the net tuition revenue per student. But, you know, one of the things that we can't control is individuals and the schools have a lot of trouble controlling is that people, good ones, well-trained people cost money. Right. Professors spend, you know, a minimum of five years in graduate training. And economics 101 suggests that, you know, people who need to spend that long learning and training ought to be con- compensated at an above average rate. Um, there are also more administrators than there used to be for every 1,000 undergraduates, but that's mostly because we like it that way, right? We want disabled kids to have access. We want kids with mental health issues to have access. We want there to be a good counseling center and all of that. So, you know, we sort of get the administrators we demand in the marketplace, but it is not cheap to run these places. And if we made them more efficient, we might not like the result. So for parents that want merit aid, how can we control merit aid and how much we can get for our child or for kids going to college? If you're a teenager, listen to this. Well, the first thing you have to be able to figure out is whether a school offers it at all and in what volume. And for the more selective schools that do offer merit aid, it is often quite difficult to figure out what is going on behind the scenes. You know, I think of schools like, um, you know, Oberlin or or Connecticut College, um, you know, relatively Tony brands, private schools, a lot of fancy kids go there. They don't really want to talk about this. They're sort of ashamed that they've got to, you know, sort of get in there and slug it out in the marketplace. And so you have to go hunting for data that is usually publicly available, but it is not kind of digested or regurgitated in a way that's useful. You have to look at something called the common data set and do a search for section H2A. And there you will figure out, you will see um, what percentage of people who have no demonstrated financial need still get scholarships anyway, and in what amounts. 
Another thing I was shocked about that you talk about in your book that people can control is if they do get a financial aid package, they can appeal it. It's true. Um, There are a lot of people who don't know that this is the case as well. And it gets a little messy, right? Because the need-based financial aid packages come from the financial aid office, but the merit aid awards come from admissions. So depending on which award you have, you may need to file your appeal to different people. And then when you do, you may need to make different sorts of arguments. Because with the need-based crew, you generally need to prove that your financial circumstances have changed since you originally applied for financial aid. That's going to give you the best chance of success. With merit aid, it's more likely to be a kind of haggling where you go to the admissions office and say, look, you know, you're my first choice, but the school that you compete with down the road that I would actually really rather not go to has offered me $6,000 more per year. Can you help me out, please? Did I make a mistake in my application to you that maybe may have made you value me less than your competitor? Let's get into other things that people can control. There's a lot of myths about how to save, where to save, and how much to save to get the best opportunity in terms of support from the college. What should people be doing? What can they control there? Well, let's go through a a couple of the maxims here that are repeated as truths in financial planning and in personal finance journalism by people who ought to know better um, that are not actually true. First of all, there's this idea out there that if you need to make a choice between saving for retirement and saving for college, you should save for retirement because you can't borrow for retirement. That implies a couple of things. First of all, that borrowing for college is necessarily and always a good idea. And it may not be for some families, but it also implies that you can't borrow for retirement, which is not true. You can borrow for retirement using a reverse mortgage if you have equity in your home. So, you know, I hate things that are presented as maxims that are actually based in factual inaccuracies. Then there's this other one that's more directly college related, which is that if you save money for college, you will be penalized for that come financial aid time. Because there's a whole bunch of problems with this. I mean, first of all, the financial aid formulas have much more to do with your income than they do with your assets. It is true that your assets will be tapped. And some people think that that means that they will be taxed. But, you know, I would argue if you've got assets, uh, it's only fair that you should have to use them before the school uses its own resources to support you. And let me also say this, right? I have never run into a family that regrets having saved for college. And I know personally that when that 529 statement comes every quarter, opening it up makes me feel great about myself. It makes me feel great that whatever other failings I may have as a parent or as a human being, this I am doing right for my kids. And speaking of your kids, that's also something you can control. You can control the way that you frame college and the way you present the choices to your children. It's true. Look, I mean, we do not have to cede decision-making authority on college to our children. It is not the case that just because they work hard, they should be able to go wherever they want. That's not how it works when this thing that they are chasing 
costs today as much as $325,000 for University of Chicago at the rack rate, right? You don't get to make that kind of choice all by yourself when you're 17 years old. So, you know, we do have some control there and we have some control over how and when we introduce these concepts to them. Because to me, you know, it's only fair that, you know, a a rising ninth grader ought to know uh, what their parent or parents' ability to pay for college might be, what their willingness to pay for college might be too. And also, you know, how the system of wheeling and dealing and discounting actually works so that if they so choose, they can position themselves to be in the best possible spot as an applicant. And the final thing I want to talk about is our own emotions. We, you know, there's the cliche, keeping up with the Joneses and everyone says, oh, I just want what's best for my child. But people get pretty emotional. People, this is for many parents, it's a reflection on, it's almost like, did they get an A plus in parenting depending on where their child goes to school? They want that sticker on the car, right? I am so glad you bring this up. You know, obviously the students have a tendency to be emotional. You know, they're getting ready to leave home. You know, they feel like it's sort of competitive. They want to be able to hold their head up in the community. They, they want what they want. And that's normal um, for adolescents. But what we tend to miss as parents is that we are not having emotionally honest conversations with ourselves with our spouses, if we have one, um, with our exes, if we have some of those, uh, about the feelings that all of this invokes and evokes, right? We're not talking about fear, our fear that our kids will go tumbling down the social class ladder if we make the wrong choice or they make the wrong choice. We don't talk about guilt, right? The guilt that we have that we didn't save more or we don't want to spend more or we're not doing what our parents were able to do for us. And so therefore we should borrow $150,000 per kid, right? We don't have those conversations out loud. And we certainly don't talk about our own elitism and snobbery and how we feel about these institutions, the way we think that an admissions offer might reflect back on us and our family, um, or even about the snobbery and elitism of the institutions that will be in the market for our 22-year-olds when they graduate and the way in which those elitist institutions might look down on what one school as opposed to another. Very interesting. And it's true. And schools, you know, one of the myths that you dispel in the book is that schools, you know, they have all these things. You you joke about the lazy river and the rock climbing walls. I mean, that is something that is sort of eye candy for students. That's not the reason schools are so expensive, by the way. No, I mean, these are really fun things to go gawk at and talk about and sort of old school types will, will snicker and, and, and think that everything's gone to rot. But I don't blame the schools for this, right? I mean, these 18-year-olds want to continue to live in the manner to which they become accustomed. And all of a sudden, in a generation, we've gone from you know, having a VCR in your room and a private phone line, you know, in your own, you know, camcorder being a luxury to everybody walking around with this little rectangle that like does all of those things. And then some, right, we just have a way higher standard of living than we used to. And so it doesn't surprise me that a bunch of institutions would want to raise the quality of the lived experience for their undergraduates. I would argue that this is, uh, you know, market driven. It's, it's not driven by the institution. And it doesn't actually cost a ton. Again, it's the people who cost money at the schools, not the amenities. Right. And that's a big, big myth that you bust in the book. 
I loved your book. I hope lots of people pick it up because it is eye-opening about so many things that I thought were true that are not true, like that last example. Ron, where can people be in touch with you? Yeah, I am itching to get back out on the road again, um, but it's probably not going to happen until you know November at the earliest. Um, so I will be all over the internet. The best way to catch up with me is to sign up for my newsletter, which I promise I don't send out all that often. Uh, but if you go to ronlieber.com and just drop your first name and your email address in there, uh, you can keep up with me. And I will continue to send notes and notices about where I will be appearing via Zoom. And um, I'm on all the usual social channels uh, at Ron Lieber. So wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, my friends, I was pretty surprised about how little, on a relative basis, all those luxuries and amenities cost. But I guess overall, it is a good thing that the money is going in large part to educators, right? I would love to hear about your experiences with paying for college. You can DM me at BobbyRebel1 on Instagram, BobbyRebel on Twitter, and please join the grown up list. We share recommendations of books, podcasts, and other fun things to level up your grown up life. Plus, we are doing giveaways of books from the authors on the show and exclusive financial grown-up merchandise. Just go to my website, bobbyrebell.com to sign up. Big thanks to The Price You Pay for College author, Ron Lieber, for helping us all be financial grown-ups. Financial Grown Up with Bobby Rebel is edited and produced by Steve Stewart and is a BRK Media production.